Okay, guys, if you have a Bible with you, please open up to Genesis, tail end of chapter 26. Uh, We're going to be going through 26 all the way through 27 this week. All right. If you've been, if you haven't been with us, let me give you kind of the Cliff Notes version to get you up to speed to where we are at. Um, basically, we've been looking at, uh, if we've been going through Genesis uh, off and on for roughly the last six months now. Uh, basically, Genesis begins with the idea of God creating the universe out of nothing. He creates humanity in His image and gives them responsibilities uh, as basically His um, His caretakers of the earth. Uh, man was created to live in subjection to God as, as, their gracious, as their gracious and loving Lord. However, we find that people did not want to submit to God as such. And so as a result, people reject God's lordship over their life. They want life on their terms. And sin, suffering, and death enters the world. Fast forward. God promises that there will be one day a descendant or a seed that will one day come in order to deal with the power of sin, suffering, and death. He will see this uh, seed is described as one who will come and crush the head of the serpent, Satan. And this is the very first prophecy we see in Scripture of what we would refer to as a Savior. Now, with that said, we've been walking through some of the lives of certain figures in, uh, in this story. First, we began with the story of Abraham. God found a man named Abram. He came from a pagan past, and he called him and his wife out of their their past and said, follow me, I will will bring you into a land that I will provide for you, I will bless you, I will bless your descendants through you, Uh, I will give you more descendants than the stars in the sky, Uh, and ultimately, he says, I will bless the whole world through your descendants. And then with there, Abraham has a son. Uh, His son is Isaac. And then that son, Isaac, has two kids, which we learned a few weeks ago, uh, Jacob and Esau. Uh, Jacob means heel uh, because he came out grabbing uh, Esau's heel, and it's a way of showing he's kind of a devious, uh, the schemer of the children. And Esau is, Esau's name basically means hairy. He's a little more of like the meathead in the family. He's a hairy dude. He's this guy who goes out and hunts and all that stuff. Uh, and there's a lot of tension in their relationship already, as we've already seen. Basically, Esau had come in one day from hunting, and he was so hungry, so tired, that Jacob planned this scheme. He made soup, uh, he made this soup for him that he would smell, and he said, hey, give me that soup or I'm going to die. And he said, well, let's talk about this. Basically, sell me your birthright, and you can have this delicious soup I'm making here, real, real easy, for the low, low price of one birthright. And so Esau sells his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of soup, and then he walks off. Uh, Now, we had a little detour last week, but now we're back to Jacob and Esau this week. Uh, And a little bit as we get into this, just about the nature of this story. This is kind of an interesting story, and it's a little bit difficult to kind of discern, like, who's the good guy in this story? So most stories you find in life, basically, it's really easy to tell who's the bad guy and who's the good guy in the story. Uh, Usually, if it's an old-timey western or something, uh, the guy wearing the black cowboy hat was usually the bad guy. Um, I don't imagine any child... I just showed my kids uh, Star Wars for the first time recently. And it opens, if you guys don't know... I can't believe I'm explaining to you if you don't know Star Wars. But anyways, if you don't know Star Wars... 
Uh, it begins with this idea of a little ship getting chased by a much bigger ship that gets boarded by Darth Vader. And Darth, I'm not explaining to you who Darth Vader is. You can look that up if you don't know who he is. Uh, basically, there's Princess Leia, and she's got cinnamon bun uh, hair. And Darth Vader storms her ship, and he's this giant robot with a deep, scary voice. And my children never had to ask, so who am I rooting for in this whole thing? It's super obvious. The big, scary robot guy is clearly the bad guy in this story. However, it gets a little tricky sometimes. Some stories muddy the waters a little bit more. Every now and then, you get a story where there really aren't any good guys in it. Uh, Crime movies. I love crime movies and stuff. And often, they're really just a bunch of deplorable people doing deplorable things to each other. There's not like a clear good guy in the story. You wouldn't watch like The Godfather or Goodfellas and be like, well, that guy's clearly the good guy in the story. No, he's just maybe like the lesser bad guy in the story. And so when we look at our story today, one of the things that's important to understand is this is one such story. The Bible isn't putting any of these figures in this story up and saying, this is the good guy, be like them. Rather, what the Bible is doing is showing us here the story of four selfish people who are looking to basically get whatever they can out of a situation. Um, It's also no accident that this section contains no appearance by God. So God doesn't show up out of the clouds. He doesn't speak to them out of the heavens. There's no angels who are sent by God to deliver a message. Ironically, this entire chapter is sort of one where God is seemingly silent. He's mentioned of, but he never actually speaks to someone in this story. This is not an accident. What, this is, what the author is doing here and what God is showing us is that this is what happens when people set aside him and his wisdom, his word, and try to live life on their own terms. And this is exactly what we see here. And the result, I'll give you, I'll give you the, the ending already, is that when we turn away from God's word, his wisdom, his direction for our life, his will, his plans, the result is chaos, okay? Chaos ensues when, that, when people turn away from the Lord. So, if you would, uh, please turn to Genesis chapter 26, starting in verse 34. Now, I'm not going to read every line of this story because it's a whole chapter of the Bible. I'm going to kind of walk you through the story and highlight certain point, points as we go along. Sound good? Awesome. Okay, Genesis chapter... Uh, 26, starting in verse 34 through th- uh, 34 and 35, begins with a marriage, which generally, you like weddings, we all like weddings, and we go, yay, this is a good thing. However, this is not a good kind of wedding. We see this, in, we, we read here, when Esau, remember, that's the big hairy meathead son, was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Besameth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite. And they made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. Okay, marriages are not supposed to work this way. Now, some of you, if you heard this and did a silent amen in your heart right now, I apologize. If, you've got a, if, you, if your kid married someone and you're like, oh, I feel like this, my bad, understand God, understand your pain. Now, marriage ideally, or by, not even ideally, marriage by design is actually supposed to make life better for parents. It's actually supposed to make it easier for parents. It's a way of saying, the Bible says uh, that eventually a man will uh, leave his father and mother and the two shall become one. And basically the idea is 
It doesn't mean that they abandon their family, but essentially there's some amount of separation uh, in the relationship so that the two can form one family. That's supposed to be a good thing. If you've raised your kids uh, from childhood to adulthood, the fact that they're on their own as adults making decisions and maybe even have someone uh, out there looking out for them as well is supposed to be a very good, reassuring thing. However, we read that that is absolutely not the case with Esau. And the Bible tells us a few things about Esau's situation and why it makes his parents bitter. So what are we told? Well, first, we're told the number of wives he took. He took two wives. Guys, let me uh, explain this. I say this often from time to time. Just because the Bible says something happened does not mean that something happening is a good thing. The Bible doesn't teach, go get as many uh, wives as you can, uh, it does, the Bible does not teach that polygamy is a good idea. The Bible teaches quite the opposite, that, that God originally at creation made one man, uh, one wife, and brought them together in marriage. Let me give you another example. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 18 teaches uh, men to rejoice in the wife of your youth and to be satisfied in her. Satisfied people don't look elsewhere for their joy, okay? We're, also told, we're not only told that Esau chose two wives, which leads to double the problem. He also chose two t- where he got these wives from. He chose Hittite women. Now, this is something that when we read this right here, we might gloss over it, but if you were the original audience this was written to, it made perfect sense. See, the Bible actually forbid the Israelites from marrying Hittite women. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses, 30, verses 3 and 4, God warns the Israelites from marrying the Hittites and the other neighboring people around the promised land. He says, You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? Verse 4, For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Understand, guys, God does, isn't forbidding them to intermarry here because of some ethnic thing. It's a religious reason. It's because of faith. Essentially, by them marrying someone from another religion, what would happen is they would be drawn away from their faith. Uh, If a Hittite... Now, there was a reason where they could could marry someone. Basically, if a Hittite person converted to Judaism, then they would rather be embraced as brothers and sisters and welcomed in, and then they could marry with such a person. Uh, That was true of all of these uh, people groups. So it wasn't that they could never do this. It was simply, uh, it was based on their faith. They had to come to faith in the God of Israel before they could marry the sons of Israel. Now, at that point, they'd be viewed as their kinsmen. We are also told uh, here, like I said, we're told where his wives came from, how many wives he had, and also we're told the result that he made his parents' wives, lives bitter. Theoretically, as I said, a marriage is supposed to make things easier. Instead, it made them worse. Now, keep this, uh, keep this in mind, guys. This is going to come and pay off at the end. So we're not going to hear about his wives again until the very end of this story. This is what we call foreshadowing. It'll come back into play later. Now, verse 27 opens up. We pick up Isaac is now an old man who's lost his sight and is probably bedridden by this point in time. Desiring to to give a special blessing to his favorite son, Esau, he makes a deal with him. Chapter 27, verse 2 says, He said, Behold, I am old. 
do not know, I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me, and prepare for me delicious food such as I love, and bring it to me so that I may eat, so that my soul may bless you before I die. Okay, we are already told in this story that Isaac uh, favors Esau over Jacob, his other son, and Rebekah favors Jacob uh, over Esau. So he makes this deal for him. He loves food. He likes the fact that he brings home the, the bacon or the steak or whatever. You know, He goes out, he hunts, he prepares him stuff, and he says, so I'll tell you what, son, I want to give you a special blessing. This is some kind of, uh, probably most likely some form of inheritance as well. He says, basically, I want to give you a blessing. Go out, hunt some food for me, make it delicious, make it yummy, bring it to me and, uh, so that I can bless you before I die. Um, he looks for one late, last great meal, essentially. Notice, however, a few things, guys. Isaac could have blessed Esau right then and there, but he doesn't. Rather, he wants something out of it, Okay. He is essentially thinking, and essentially he's thinking with his stomach. Uh, often in the Bible, however, this is more. This is described. Thinking with your stomach is uh, is used it, it, not simply to describe hunger, but a way of seeking your own desires, and that's what we see here in Isaac. Uh, ultimately, he wants to see what he's going to get out of it before he blesses his son. Uh, for example, just to explain this idea of uh, stomach and hunger and our personal desires. Uh, Paul the Apostle speaks of someone's appetite as being a form of idolatry. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 18 through 19, he says, For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, and listen to this description, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. This is a picture of a person who has put their, desire, their desires above anything else. Actually, like I said, this you could see in our story. Every person in our story falls prey to this. Everybody in our story today essentially is seeking their own desire above anyone else's and above God's plan and God's word. Now, in the book of Genesis, God frequently speaks to people. As I said, his silence is telling here. This is, and so what we, we already know from the get-go is this is a story about people seeking their own desires. At this point, we turn to Rebecca. So Isaac makes this deal with his son, and Rebecca, we can just imagine, is kind of eavesdropping at the door. She hears this, and she says she wants her son, her favorite, to get a leg up. So she goes, tells him, knowing that God may... It's possible that she does this because she knows the promise of God, that God promised to bless Jacob. And so... Leave, she wants to leave nothing to chance. So she comes up with a scheme. And we read of this scheme in verse 6. It says, Rebekah said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare them from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, so that he may bless you before he dies. Uh, there's a phrase here that Rebecca says over and over and over in this chapter I want to draw your attention to. It's the phrase, obey my 
voice. Now remember, this is written to God's people who are now becoming a nation. And in case you didn't know what was implied by this, the idea of obey my voice, the implication is he is therefore listening to her advice, her wisdom over the Lord's. Jacob knows this isn't a good plan, okay? Jacob knows this is a bad idea he's walking into. And so she keeps telling him this idea, obey my voice. He even says, she even adds, as I command you, which the original audience would hear that and little lights would go off in their head because they knew that when God brought them out of slavery, what did he give them? He gave them commands. He told them how to live their life on his terms. Make no mistake about this, guys. By listening to her voice, Jacob is ignoring the commands of God here. So, in order to pull off this ruse, he's going to have to disobey God in at least a few obvious ways. He's going to dishonor his father by going to him like this. He will also lie to his father, which is bearing false testimony. And in doing so, he will steal from his brother and even take the Lord's name in vain. Guys, if this was like a commandment-breaking bingo sheet, Jacob's got them all filled in. He's going for coverall bingo at this point in time, okay? Now, Jacob actually objects to this at first. He, He can't pull this off. After all, Esau's a hairy guy. Jacob's a little dude, and he's smooth and baby-faced. His dad's going to know. So Rebecca throws, uh, takes Esau's best clothes, throws them on him, so he smells like a, she stinks like a animal or something. And then not only that, she takes, the, she takes a goat, the same goat she's going to feed him. She slaughters it, and she takes the the hair of that goat and puts it on his like his his hand and his fingers and things like that. So if he touches him, he feels he puts it on the back of the neck, so he feels all hairy like his brother. Now. This is going maybe a bit beyond the text, but I want to suggest two possibilities here. (laughs) Either at this point in time, it's possible that Isaac is just maybe a little bit more senile and can't tell the difference in this situation, which maybe helps this, uh, this ruse to be pulled off. Or Esau is like a Yeti or something, you know what I mean? I don't know a lot of people, if you want to fool them by the, if they're hairy, like... You go, ah, go kill a goat and put the skin on him, okay? So something's up. I just want to make that clear. So she puts the skin of the goat and the hair of the goat on him so that he's, fur- he's furry to the touch, essentially. And she says, okay, you stink, you're furry. She fixes the food. She says, go and, uh, go and deliver this to your dad. And when everything is prepared, she sends him into his father's room with food in hand. And he says, verse 18, so he went to his father and said, my father, and he said, here, am I, here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game so that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. So he doubles down on this lie. He doesn't just say, hey, Esau here, and when he says, well, hey, this was quick. Seems like pretty quick to go hunt an animal and slaughter it and prepare a meal. How'd you do this so fast? What happens in the, what, what proceeds after this is sort of the, the situation grows tenser and tenser. Um, if this were uh, 
as this were a movie, you could hear like the strings kind of bum bum every time, and it gets as the as it gets as the tension builds and builds and builds. Uh, basically, every time Esau, Jacob thinks he's gotten away with it, his father Isaac has a question. It says, "Wait, wait, wait, hold on." Also, it's probably worth noting that this phrase, "My father," we've already seen this before. Actually, this is the same thing that Isaac said to his father Abraham. When he, this is how he addressed him when he was going out to the Mount of Moriah to be, said, to be sacrificed. He addressed him as my father. And so similarly, we see tension building with this, with this response. So each time you think that Jacob has gotten away with it, another suspicion pops up in his head. He asks him, how have you come back so quickly? And then Jacob has to think quick and, and, and give him an answer. He says, because God's given me success. Then he asks him, well, come closer so that I can tell you were Esau. So he touches his hand and feels the goat hair and goes, oh, hairy one, sounds like Esau. But then he says, you don't sound like Esau. I mean, you're hairy like Esau, but you you sound a lot more like Jacob. And he says, are you sure you're really him? He says, I am. So he says, come here, come here and give me a kiss. When he kisses him, he smells his clothes, and he says, verse 27, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of the heaven under the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Okay. There's an interesting description here. It's actually unique from the other descriptions we find here. When God was promising blessings to Abraham and to Isaac, what he would do, he would explain their descendants and things like that. The wording here is a little different. Here it's all described in terms of the land, the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, grain and wine. Now there's a reason for that. And once again, the original audience would notice it. This is how the promised land of Israel is described. Let me explain. Deuteronomy chapter 33 verses 27 describes it as this. The eternal God is your dwelling place and underneath the, are the everlasting arms. And he thrust out the enemy before you and said, destroy. So Israel lived in safety. Jacob lived alone in a land of grain and wine whose heavens drop down dew. So this blessing they're giving him, they would see this connection here. Um, the beauty, but, but think of the shock for a second. What they're learning is this beautiful land that was promised to them is really something they stole from some, that was stolen from them by, a, by their sneaky ancestor. It has to be a little bit shocking, if you imagine. And so having received this blessing, Jacob sneaks away and leaves his father. And as the Bible even explains it, that just as he is passing out, as he is leaving, Esau walks into the room. So you can imagine that they basically pass each other uh, on the when one's going in, when one's going out. And I imagine if they're brothers, one of them said to him, "Hey, dude, take off my shirt. You're wearing my favorite shirt, and what's with the goat hair on you?" <laughs> but Esau goes in expecting a blessing. Once again, he's he's 
he's labored, he's gone through all this, he's cooked this food, he walks in, verse 30, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father, and he said to his father, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, who are you? And he answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate all before you came, and I blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. That little phrase right there, yes, and he shall be blessed, lets us know that Isaac's uh, promise is irrevocable. He can't just say, oh, bless the wrong son, let's try this again. Rather, because of this, this is an oath that is, stands firm. Isaac realizes what has happened, uh, but regardless, it's, his blessing is irrevocable. The blessing is now bound to Jacob. Verse 34, as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me even also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing." Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? That means heel. For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright and behold, now he has taken away from me my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? Isaac answered and said to Esau, behold, I have made him Lord over you and all his brothers. And I have given to him for his servants with grain and wine and I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Now, before we feel too sorry for Esau here, keep in mind, Esau was absolutely okay getting this blessing all to himself when he thought he was going to be the recipient of it. He was absolutely okay getting all this. He didn't mention to, to his father, Hey, don't forget... Uh, Isaac, and if you even read here, he says brothers, so it's possible uh, they even had multiple brothers that aren't even mentioned here. He's like, hey, you know, spread the love, Dad. He doesn't say anything like that. And so in an ironic turn of events, Esau has to argue for scraps that he, he had hoped his brothers to have. Isaac, having promised everything to Jacob, now gives this promise to Esau, his favorite son. He says, behold, Verse 39, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be and away from the dew of the heaven on high. By your sword you shall live and you shall serve your brother. And when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now these, these words, away from, occur only once else in Genesis in a similar situation of brothers. It was used of Cain and Abel. It's used to describe God's punishment of Cain after killing his brother Abel. Uh, Genesis chapter 4 explains this. Verse 14, it says, Behold, you have, uh, Cain says to the Lord, You have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. Verse 16, of Je- uh, he sa- it says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Esau's blessing is hardly what we might think of as a blessing here. Rather, it almost sounds like a curse with an escape clause attached. Um, also, it is mo- by connecting it to Cain and Abel, it's most likely foreshadowing what, right, what's about to happen next. 
Verse 41. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching. Then I will kill my brother Jacob. See, Esau is more like Cain than you might think. Like Cain, in jealousy, he plots to murder his brother. Killing Jacob may have been Esau's way of assuring the blessing of his father came true. See, okay, Jacob gets the blessing, but if I kill Jacob, then I get the blessing. Check. However, once again, Rebecca overhears this plot to kill her favorite son, and so she goes and warns him. Verse 42, Behold, your brother Esau comes, she tells to Jacob. Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. There's that phrase again. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? So we start to see that foreshadowing uh, pay off as well. So she warns him. She says, look, I need, you're going to go to the, land, to the land of my forefathers. You're going to find my uncle Laban, who ironically was introduced at the beginning of this story. And we didn't really know. Why does it tell us who her uncle is? Now it pays off. We realize, oh, that's where Jacob is going to escape to. However, she's got to have a good reason. She needs an excuse to send Jacob away. It sounds a little bit too... Uh, obvious if she's like, well, I don't want him to get killed, so I'm going to send him away. So she comes up with this excuse in verse 46. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the, the land, that, what good will my life be to me? Remember, our story began with Esau taking Hittite wives and making his parents' lives bitter. He didn't realize it, but God did, that that was going to provide the out clause to get Jacob out, uh, out, of the, out uh, to safety, basically. She goes, you know how much we hate our stepdaughters. We don't want more of those. Let's send the boy away. So, that's what he does. Jacob sends his son away. Now, as I said, everyone in the story ignores God in some way. Isaac looks, uh, seeks to bless his favorite son for the sake of his own appetite. Rebecca seeks to force a, bless, a blessing upon her favorite son through her scheming. Jacob tries to weasel his way into his, his brother's blessing through lying. And Esau plans to murder his brother out of jealousy and in, in order to incur a blessing for himself. No one wants to please God in this story. The author throws in all these little hints in the text to remind us as well that no one is listening to the word of the Lord here. So what's the story teaching us about God? Well, we see that God's plans are unchanging for a very simple reason, because God himself is unchanging. Therefore, what he sets out and plans to do, he will do. Imagine what the Israelites hearing this story about, about to enter the promised land must have thought. They're being told that all the good blessings they have, they're about to experience, uh, are in spite of a bunch of people ignoring God and trying to actively work against him in many ways. What a strange history indeed. You would expect them, by the way, to, to glorify their ancestors, right? You would expect them to, tell, to speak of them like they were perfect. Uh, there's an... Uh, you'd essentially expect them to print the legend, so to speak. 
But the Bible does none of that. Rather, the Bible presents the Israelites' ancestors as very flawed, very human people. The Bible does this for a very specific reason, guys. Because it's true. See, the Bible doesn't just the Bible doesn't just give you the glorified, glossy version of the story. It gives you the truth about people, warts and all. We would expect a people establishing their own history, like I said, to give you only the good stuff and hide the bad. However, the Bible often portrays the patriarchs of the faith as self-seeking, greedy, dishonest, hateful people. Why? Because Isaac and Jacob aren't the heroes of this story. The hero in the story is always the Lord. See, the Bible presents these men and women as very flawed humans loved by a perfect, unchanging God. Why would, he, why would the Bible do that? Why would God do that? Because the Bible is written for faulty people like you and me, that, they might, that we might come to know and worship the one who is truly faultless. This brings us to the big idea for the week, guys. Something, if you can, if the one key takeaway I, want, I have for you. It's this. Seek God's will even when it conflicts with your desires. Trust God's plans, God's way, God's timing. See, here the Bible gives us four examples, essentially, of what not to do. How much greater, then, is it to trust in God's promises and seek him on his terms? If he was able to bless Jacob in spite of Jacob, imagine how he's able to bless people who actually trust him and seek his word and seek his ways. No one in the story is seeking the Lord's will. But did that change God's plans to bless Jacob? No. He'll, ultimately, he will still do that, but Jacob's lies didn't get him any closer to that promise. Turning away from God and trying to figure things out, trying to make it work to his advantage, didn't do him any good. As a matter of fact, it left him driven from his home for many, many years. His brother, it leaves, him, it leaves his family broken up. His brother is trying, planning to kill him, and all these things. What ultimately happened is by trying to seek his desires over the Lord's, it robbed Jacob of joy in the moment. He showed that he was not ready to receive the blessings God had planned for him, and so he would spend many years learning the error of his ways, learning to trust the Lord. Ultimately, he was walking through life overconfident in his own cleverness. God was going to bring him home with a limp. Now, in spite of all this, God was still protecting Jacob. He was still looking out for him. As I said, the beginning of this story plants the seed that will ultimately save his life. He would go with him into this land, and he would show his faithfulness to him over and over again. Point is, guys, God's will is going to be accomplished but the question for you is, how do you want to fit into those plans? See, you can't resist him and try it on your own. Rather, we have to submit to his will, his commands, and by doing so, we are told that we are blessed. So what, is, what blessings come from following the Lord? Let me end by giving you this, uh, reading you the first psalm. I believe the first psalm sets it up brilliantly. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. You can see how this fits in with the people in our story. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, 
and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And the author goes on to describe uh, the, those, what happens to those who deny him, essentially. But this is the idea. Those who don't stand in the seat of scoffers, those who don't uh, walk in the way of the wicked, those who listen to God in his word, submit to him and trust in him, are blessed. They produce fruit in their due season. And then last but not least, guys, don't miss the fact that the people of Israel hearing this story would understand something. They would be reminded that everything they're getting as they go into the promised land is a gift of God's grace. It was painfully obvious from this story they didn't deserve the land they were entering. Then why was it theirs? Simple. Because God in his mercy and grace gave it to them. Well, we're going, as, we, as we close out this time and we move into a time where we take the Lord's Supper, I encourage you with this. Remember what God in his grace has given to us. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, not the love that we have shown him, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. And then he adds, by grace you have been saved. God, every, uh, guys, everything we have from the Lord is a gift of grace. It's all from him. It's not something we earned. To that I say, all glory be to God. Bow your heads, let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we bless you. We praise you. Lord, you have blessed us often in spite of us. You have been faithful. God, help us to seek you on your terms. Help us to submit to your word and not our own desires. Teach us to be people who follow you in faith. Teach us to be people who acknowledge that everything we have is a gift of grace. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.